kids head out, I wanted to start with a word I read this morning as I was reading God's Word and just felt, you know, that's, that's something I need to hear. Maybe it's something you all need to hear this morning as well. And really felt God wanted me to read this and just kind of making this our prayer this morning. It comes from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. And it's subtitled, uh, Jeremiah's Prayer. It begins in verse 14 and goes through 15. And, and this is the word the Lord says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as your children, those who have been saved by grace. And Lord, I, I pray that as we come seeking you and seeking a word from you, not from a preacher or, or another sinful individual, Lord, but from you, the holy God. Lord, let your word come. Let your spirit speak to our hearts in a way that only you can as our Father. Let your spirit Correct us and rebuke us and train us for righteousness, for everything that you've prepared for us to do, every good work you've set aside. Lord, you are our salvation. You are our healer. I, I praise you in your, your all-knowing ability to know every single individual in this room and where our hearts are and where our minds are and, and the situations we've been going through this week, the, the triumphs. Lord, and, and sometimes the losses. I thank you that you know every concern upon our heart, every worry, every stress, every doubt and question, and Lord, that you tell us to come. Father, you, you tell us to bring those things before you. You are a, a very, very big God, the Almighty God. You can handle all these things that we bring. In this moment, it's time. I pray that your word would be opened up, that you would reveal your scriptures to us. You would give us that blessing you gave your disciples to give us understanding. Father, I pray for myself that, that my words would be pleasing to you. The meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And Father, that you would just have your way with us this morning. We are the clay and you are the potter. So mold us into who you need us to be before we leave this place. And I ask that all glory be given to you in everything that is said and done in this place. That we not only be hearers of your word in this time, but we become doers of it and what you lay before us. Do pray for forgiveness where I have failed you and where we have failed you as your people. We have not been in your way. We have not been in your will. Well, I do thank for your grace and your mercy. And I pray for the strength that we need for when the temptations do come to try to pull us away from you. Above all else, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our life as it is in heaven and that we would leave this place knowing we've been in the presence of the one true God. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we are in Revelation chapter 3. I encourage you to make your way there. Uh, we'll be beginning in verse 7. We're in week 6 of 7. There's seven churches that are given instruction in the book of Revelations, chapter 2 and 3. And we are week 6 of 7, so we'll wrap it up uh, next week. 
Um, this morning we are looking at the Church of Philadelphia. Uh, it is the only, uh, one of the only churches, one of two, that does not receive any sort of rebuke from our Lord and Savior. It makes it tied with the Church of Smyrna in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And though Philadelphia and Smyrna do not receive any sort of rebuke from our Lord and Savior, again, this is two of the five that don't. Uh, what we do find is Smyrna and Philadelphia each have their own struggles in which our Lord Jesus Christ comes to deliver encouragement, to give them the word to begin to press on. And so we're going to walk through this passage and see what, what God says to His church um, and how they can press on in the midst of the struggle. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So as we walk through this this morning and seeing what God says and what He wants to say to us through His Word, uh, one thing to point out is even though the Church of Philadelphia is tied with the Church of Smyrna and not receiving abuse, neither of these churches are perfect within the book, uh, the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, because all these churches seem to have issues. Uh, whether that's mental issues, spiritual issues, persecution issues, passion issues, compassion issues, poverty issues, or even unbiblical issues. See, there's no such thing as a perfect church. On this side of eternity, we will never find a perfect church. We'll find places we feel this is maybe where God is calling us. We'll find places we feel this is where we belong. We'll find places we feel like we can be ourselves in. But if we're here hoping to find a perfect church, you're going to be disappointed. As we walk through this series, one thing we've defined the church as is not as a building, but the church is a gathering of God's people whom God has called out of this world who in turn would call out to the world. And because the church is a gathering of God's people who have been called out of this world, yet still struggle with a sinful nature, we still struggle with sin and the passions of the flesh, we still do things we know we shouldn't do, and we make up the church, that means within the church there are sinful people. There are people who are going to disappoint you, which in turn makes the church is going to disappoint you. I know many of us, I've heard your stories and we've gathered and we've talked and some of y'all come from some stories of the church that have hurt you or even individuals within the church that have hurt you. That's going to happen. That's going to happen on this side of eternity is because there's no such thing as a perfect church because there's no such thing as perfect people. We're only being perfected by Jesus Christ who is the ultimate sign of perfection. The church at time and the people in the church are going to make sinful choices. And even though we know this, and you've probably heard this, I think sometimes we just need that reminder. Uh, 
because we can become disappointed. We, we, we can get frustrated with the church and frustrated with the people at the church. You've got to understand they're dealing with sin just like you're dealing with sin. And so we come together in the eyes of our holy God by his grace and his mercy to make up the church. And with the church of Philadelphia, like the church of Smyrna, this church is struggling, yet they do not receive a rebuke from Jesus Christ. And we learn a lesson about not only our life individually and our relationship with God, but also the life of the church. There are struggles in this world. We're either going to be struggling with being persecuted by the world for living for Christ, or we're going to be struggling with temptation to conform to the world. That is going to be our life. I'm either struggling because people are persecuting me because I am all in for Christ and they don't understand why I do what I do or, or why I say what I say or why I don't do what I do. They don't understand decisions I make and they, they, they call me names. They call me you know, closed-minded and, and, and whatever, Bible thumper. So I'm either in this, this role where I'm being persecuted by the world or I'm going to be in this role where I'm being tempted to conform to the world. And this is what the churches are dealing with. The church of Smyrna and Philadelphia are being persecuted, but there's nothing wrong within the church, at least that Jesus brings up, except maybe their mental outlook. For the church of Philadelphia, we have another, another tie into the church of Smyrna in that they're dealing with this group of Jewish people to which Jesus defines there in verse 9 of chapter 3 as the synagogue of Satan. The word synagogue means an assembly. It's to speak of individuals who have gathered together just like what the church is. And so what Jesus paints this picture is there are two opposing forces going at it. There's the church, the gathering of God's people, and then there's this assembly or synagogue, which is a gathering of people opposed to the will of God and the word of God. That's what synagogue of Satan means to these Jewish people, these individuals who should know the covenantal God, the word of God, the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. But because Jesus titles them in such saying that they are the exact opposite of what God wants them to be. They're living opposed to God's word, opposed to Jesus Christ, opposed to the will, opposed to God's plan. And this is the church of Philadelphia as they're surrounded and bombarded by these individuals who should know the word of God like they do. And yet they're living in opposition. Well, you're just doing it wrong. That's not the way that should look. You know, you, you have it all messed up in your view of God. And yet these believers here in Philadelphia continue to press on. Jesus comes to them and says to them that you have kept my word. And yet I know, verse 9 or verse 8, that you have little power. Whereas the church of Smyrna was going through tribulation with the synagogue of Satan, they had poverty. And yet Jesus comes to the church of Smyrna and says, but you're rich. Here the church of Philadelphia has little power. And yet Jesus comes to this church and he says, let me tell you what true power is. And let me tell you how you do have power. It may not be the power that the world perceives or the world sees, but let me show you what you have the power of. So this last week on Facebook, I put out a post earlier in the week. Um, if you're not a Facebook fan, no worries. You're not missing anything, really. Uh, but the question was, how would you define power? And I just kind of left it at that. I put it on the church's Facebook, and I put it on my own Facebook because I wanted to get as many perspectives. And some people played along with me and answered. And I had answers like, you know, well, Superman. And, and I, I don't know the person that answers Superman. At least I don't think I do. They may be a friend somehow. But I, I, I don't recollect their name. 
Um, and, but they're very knowledgeable about Superman because uh, they gave me dates that I should look at in Superman comics. I didn't, but, um, but anyway, Superman is power. Some people just said God, and some people define power as an ability or strength or knowledge. It's happiness or the ability to influence somebody or the ability to control a situation. I had a friend from high school that answered that it's Joel Seconds. I think I'm pronouncing that correct because I had to look up what Joel Seconds were because I did not know that term. Um, Joel Seconds is this phrase that's used to measure action. So I guess that works for power. But the idea of power is that it's something that we control or that controls us. But the idea of power is also an outlook on life. And it's an action within life and an action we take or an action that impacts our own, our own lives. The dictionary defines power as the ability to do something or act in a particular way. Now, the word power here when spoken in, in the Bible, uh, there in verse 8 of chapter 3, is the word we, re, we read as dynamite in the English, uh, which comes from the Greek, and it means this. It is influence, strength, resources, and number. And so Jesus comes to this church speaking about his knowledge of the church. I know. He says that twice in verse 8. I know. I know. And he reveals that he knows their circumstances. And then he talks about doors for a little bit, which we'll dive into that in a second. But he understands that this church is in a situation where they have a lack of resources. They have a lack of strength. They have a lack of influence in their city. They have a lack of ability. They have a lack of power. Yet at the same time, when Jesus says, I know what little power you have, Jesus comes to this church that is struggling with a power issue to reveal the little power they have is focused on the true power within them. So he's changing their perspective. He opens in verse 7, it is a little bit different than what we see in the other church. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one and, and opens. This is Old Testament language. This is different from the other churches we've already seen where the Apostle John was led by the Spirit to point back to chapter 1 of Revelation and to bring up a phrase or title that pointed to Jesus Christ and His holiness and splendor. Here the Apostle John in the opening hears the words from Christ speaking and it's to take him back to the Old Testament. This is Old Testament language. And so this church that is struggling with power and influence and probably doesn't have a large attendance, probably doesn't have a massive amount of people and is struggling in the midst of this city that's called the city of brotherly love, not for Christian reasons whatsoever, but for Roman and Greek reasons. This was not a Christian city. And Jesus comes and says, look, remember who I am. I am the Holy One. I am the true one. I am the one who has the key to David. The city of Philadelphia, to understand this city, was a very unstable city, not only spiritually, but physically. The city of Philadelphia was established upon a great fault line in which earthquakes would happen uh, periodically and there would be some devastating earthquakes, one that uh, made the city fall and, and be completely destroyed as well as, as well as 10 other cities around the area, Smyrna being one of them. Is a church or a city which had a, a strong Greek and Roman influence, obviously because it was the Roman Empire, but also had a strong Jewish population that lived in heavy opposition to Christianity in the way, feeling that they were preaching something as opposed to the Word of God. 
The believers living in Philadelphia lived in a very unstable situation. They felt powerless. They felt like there was, everything was stacked against them. And there's things that Jesus comes to this church, which I think we can take away this morning in understanding about power. And first it begins to understand the power of things beyond our control. Here's this church that lived in a, a strong earthquake area. It lived in a strong volcanic area. I don't know if I said that word right, but that's okay. It made the city very, uh, very fertile as far as agriculture and, and very lush. But the problem is no one wanted to live there. Such strong earthquakes that a lot of people eventually left the city, which may be one of the reasons why the Christians are such small in number, because people just didn't stay in Philadelphia. It's one of those cities is like, why'd you move here? That was Philadelphia. And so people weren't staying here, but at the same time, the unstableness of the physical location, the unstableness of the spiritual location, had the believers all up in arms. So Jesus says, look, I know your power, but look, let me tell you what real power is. There's some things that are beyond your control when it comes to power. See, I can't control how people are going to react to my proclamation of Jesus Christ. You can't control how people respond when you share the gospel. That's beyond our control. But what we can control is sharing the gospel. You can't control how people respond for you living for God and, and, and representing God in your life, in your workplace, and in your family. You can't control those things. Those are things out of your control. But there is a power that you can control. And what Jesus does is he comes to this church and you notice he does not rebuke it. He does not say, look, I know there's earthquakes. I know you're in the midst of persecution. I know you're being segregated against, but you need to get your act together. What he does is he comes to this church and understanding their situation of little power, understanding their ability to control everything around them and reminds them of what they are, what they have power to control within their own lives. So there's two responses we can have to situations in our own life. Francis Chan writes in his book that one of them is we can turn inward. One way to respond is when life gets out of control and we stress and we worry, we, we turn to ourselves. The other response when things are out of control or are out of our power is to acknowledge our lack of control. And therefore, we reach out for God's help. And if life were stable, we would never reach out for God's help. But since it's not, we can reach out to Him regularly. There are things you are going to encounter that are beyond your control. How many of y'all ever had an appliance breakdown? How many of y'all go to start the car and you get... Doesn't start. How many of y'all have the heater go out, the air conditioner go out? This week, we were blessed with children getting sick. Beyond our control. You know, we, we, we even try to figure out how they got sick. What, did we do something? Someone else do something? Where did they get this? We wanted to make sure we didn't get it. Um, and so we did everything within our own control. But there are things that are going to happen in life that are beyond your control. You cannot, you cannot change those things. That's life. Jesus doesn't come to this church and say, you know what? Get over it. He recognizes their lack of control, but then what does he do? He says, there are things, there's a power you have that is also within your control. This church, he says that I know you have little power, but look what he says right after that in verse 8. 
But you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Matter of fact, he says that twice to this church of Philadelphia struggling with power. If you jump there in verse 10, he says, because you have kept my word. The word kept means to guard. It means to protect. It means to, to round it about. And so this church that's lacking power and influence, this, this church that is in the midst of this struggle, one thing they did not do is they did not allow the outside things that they could not control, they did not have power over, to impact the one thing they did have control over and did have power over. They did not allow the outside circumstance to impact their pursuit of God. You see, no one, no one can make you not pursue after God. No one can make you not read your word. No one can make you be quiet when proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church of Philadelphia may have little power, but to understand the power it did have was their personal pursuit and connection to God, which could not be taken from them. Jesus says in verse 10 that you have kept my word about patient endurance. What is that patient endurance? What is the word that Jesus is speaking about here? It's the gospel. So we proclaim Jesus Christ is the only way the Father, His death and resurrection is by the means of our salvation and our forgiveness and we're made children of God. But the gospel is also now that I've been changed and transformed and now that I'm a Christian in the image of Christ and continue to be molded and made into God's holiness, that I'm going to face things in this world beyond my control that are going against who God is making me to be. That's the gospel. They kept the word in, about patient endurance. They kept the word when Jesus said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. They kept the word when Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. They kept the word as far as when Jesus said, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. See, there are things that are out of my control and there's things within my control. The same goes for you. I can't control everything around me. I'd like to think I can, don't we, guys? We like to think we can. I got a plan. I've got it all on my Excel sheet. It's going to go according to my time schedule. And my phone's going to tell me exactly when it needs to happen. I've got it all worked out. And then something happens beyond my control. But what I can control is my pursuit and knowledge and connection of God in the midst of that circumstance. And so that's where we are with the struggle. That's where this church seems to be on the cuff of, is that they can't control the way people are treating them or the situation around earthquakes, volcanoes. They didn't have a chart or a computer to say, hey, it's coming. But what they could control is their connection and relationship to God and how they lived according to that connection and relationship to God. And no one, no one on this earth has the power to make you do otherwise. I think we need to know that. No one can make me live opposed to Christ. I have to make that decision myself. No one can make me sin. I have to make that decision myself. That's within my power. So this church that's struggling, Jesus comes and says, you know what? You have little power, but let me show you true power. 
Where do we do when those times come? What do we turn to? Now, sometimes we get tempted that we, you know, some of us, we have these, these outlets, right? For some of us, it's shopping. For some of us, it's food, entertainment, some sort of hobby. Sometimes we just got to go blow something up, right? Or shoot something. We sit in front of the TV and we veg out. We get on the internet and we surf it, whatever that means. But we have these outlets. The Church of Philadelphia, in the midst of this tribulation, in the midst of the things out of control and out of their power, their outlet was God. They kept to God's word. They guarded it. They protected it. They knew no matter what happened in life, there was nowhere else that they could turn to. No no one else they could turn to. And so God reminds them of what I think we all need. We all need to remind them of the power of the one who controls it all. Notice how Jesus defines himself. Verse 7, he says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. That, that's power. That word holy one, the word holy means to be completely separate. It's to be different. It's to be unlike anything else. It's used frequently throughout Scripture to describe God and throughout Revelation concerning Jesus Christ. You know, John, when he saw the holiness of Jesus in chapter 1, we're told that he fell at his feet though dead. Later on in Revelation, the heavenly beings are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That holy, 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 which we sing in our songs and, and, and we, we read, is, is saying that, yes, God is holy. But because it's holy, 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 it's saying that He is perfect in His holiness. He is perfect in His separation from the sinful world. He is perfect in His distinction. He is not corrupted by our choices. He's not corrupted by the things that go on in our life. He is unchanged by the circumstances that change around us. He is stable, unmovable. He's not surprised by any situation you find yourself in or going through in this moment. That's why He is holy, holy, holy. And that's what Jesus calls this church to return to and to focus on, not the circumstance, but the holiness of God. It's to change our perspective in the midst of the struggles we go through in this life. Jesus never promises this church, I'm going to take you out of this situation. What He promises this church, or what He instructs this church, is to look to the right thing in the midst of the situation to focus on the proper things. He says, I am the Holy One. That phrase comes from the Old Testament. It's used quite a bit. And I kind of laughed this week the way our Holy God works things out because I've been reading through Isaiah personally on my own. And, and as I was studying for this week and come across that phrase, Holy One, I mean, you don't know how many times Holy One of God or the Holy One, the Lord, is found in Isaiah. 27 times. 
God refers to himself in that way. In Isaiah 43.3, he comes to his people, Israel, who are in the midst of struggle, who are in the midst of uncertainty uh, for different reasons in Philadelphia because they rebelled against God in, in the time of Jeremiah or Isaiah. But here God comes and says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, your salvation. He goes on to say, because I am the Holy One, verse uh, 5 of chapter 43 of Isaiah, says, fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. See, that's the blessed promise we get from Scripture that no matter what I go through in life, no matter how powerless I feel, I am protected and guarded. I am kept like the Church of Philadelphia by the Holy One of God. And so I don't have to fear anything because He is with me and the promise He will never leave or forsake me. So I got to change my perspective. Yeah, this is going on. It wasn't according to my plan, but He has a plan that is good. and He's here. He's with me. He says later on in, in Revelation chapter, or chapter 3, verse 7, He says, I am the true one. Would you take this church back to the teachings of Jesus when he said, I am the truth. The word true means to be real and genuine. So as this church is struggling with these Jewish people who Jesus says, these aren't Jewish people. These aren't my people. They're a synagogue of Satan. He comes to them and he says, look, I am the real deal. I am authentic. I am genuine. I am true, absolute truth. It's a reminder of this church when we don't know where to turn or what to trust that we can always trust in the God who will be true. He will always, always be faithful to his word. And all we've got to do is get past the temptation of doubting it. We've got to keep to it. We've got to keep to it. He says... In verse 7, that he has the key of David. Again, this is Old Testament. This is messianic, messianic uh, speaking, a prophecy concerning Jesus coming from the line of David. It is a, a message to this church to struggling with power, faced with persecution by a Jewish people who should know Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ and Savior of the world. It's a message to them. And a statement that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was. And he will always be. So he comes to the church and reminds them. that it says, look, I don't have the keys. I have the key. There's only one. And I've got it. And because you keep to my word, I keep to you. And that's why I'm able to open things that are shut and shut things that are open and I open doors that no one else can open and I shut doors no one else can shut which probably is speaking about how the Jews had kicked these believers out of the synagogue the place where many of them probably thought that's the place where I hear the word of God and I fellowship with God's people and they probably closed the door and Jesus comes and says you are no power it's not about these people proclaiming that that there's something when they're not true powers even though they close doors is I can kick down any door I want and I will for you because I have the key. I have the key. But it's also a reminder of this church that sometimes God doesn't open doors. Sometimes he keeps them closed no matter how much we want them to open. But it's because he has the key. Because he knows the right way and, and the right door we need to go through. It's to speak 
of his ultimate authority. He sits upon the throne. He has the ultimate authority over all things. He goes on to say that I have this key and that no one can open who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one can open and I put a door before you that is open and no one can shut that door and though you have little power, understand that I have true power and dominion and authority and I will do for you what needs to be done. I will take care of you. He has control over all circumstances. It's a reminder to this church who's struggling, maybe a reminder to us that we serve a God that promises in His Word that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. No circumstance. So Jesus tells His church, if you look there in verse 10, He gives them another, another, another promise. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world. This is speak of the final judgment. It's a promise to believers here in Philadelphia, but also believers all over the world and all who would come to Christ that our God is faithful and He will be faithful to His Word. And we, now that we're covered by the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ, hear this, we are immune and exempt from the wrath of God. Praise Jesus. When I see my God in all of His holiness and His splendor and His trueness and authority and power, I am exempt from the wrath of God, not by anything I've done, but by Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to be kept from the hour of trial that's going to come to the whole world. And he says there in verse 12 that I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall he go. Can you imagine as a believer living in a world where earthquakes happened all the time and volcanoes and things fell and tumbled that Jesus Christ, the holy true one, comes to you and says, I'm going to make you a pillar. It's a phrase to say, I'm going to make you immovable. I'm going to make you stable. I'm going to make you so you never fall. You never crumble. You are going to be, you're going to be firm and founded in the presence of my God. He's not saying I'm going to make you a piece of architecture. Man, that wouldn't be, that would be a horrible heaven. I'm a, I'm a door. You're a pillar. No, he's saying it's speaking of our eternal security that I'm now in the presence of our God and I will never be moved from the presence of my God because I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 12, I'm going to give you the name of the city that is of my God. It's kind of like what we say today. So where are you from? I'm from Stratford. So people associate us with where we're from. I'm, where were you born? Where'd you go to school at? Where, I mean, we do this all the time. What Jesus says is now that you are mine and I'm going to make you immovable, stable in the presence of my God. That I'm going to give you the name of the city of my God. We won't say we're from Missouri or from North America or from Stratford or from Greene County. What we'll say is I'm from the city of God. Because that's where I belong. A city that will never fall, will never crumble, will never be broken. I'm from that city. He tells them that I'm going to give you a new name, my new name there in verse 12. Again, it's taken from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 3 says, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. It is the God who declares us to be who we are and defines us to be who we are. 
See, I'm not defined by this world. I'm not defined what people think about me. I'm not even defined by my job or my title or that I'm a husband and father. To God, I'm defined as His. And this is a beautiful message because so many people probably here this morning are struggling with some sins they have in their past and are allowing that sin to define them. And God comes to you in this moment and says, that's not how I see you. If you've accepted my gift, my salvation, my love, I do not define you by your past failures, but by your future glory. You're mine. You belong to my city. And I've given you my name. It's a new name. This truth is spoken to these believers here in Philadelphia that they were going to be clothed with power though they felt powerless. They were living in the midst of this power by keeping to the word of God, not allowing their circumstances to alter their course. They were going to keep God's word and pursue after God. And again, Jesus never comes to this church and says, yeah, just keep going, keep going, just do a little bit harder and we'll get you out of this mess. The promise isn't about their current, but their future. It's a promise that you take us back to the psalmist in chapter 23, verse 4, where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the promise Philadelphia receives. Even though you're going through this valley, even though you're going through these times of little power, I'm with you. And I am the Holy One, the True One, the One who holds the key of David, the One who is faithful, and the One who gives you promises that cannot be taken. The reality is, despite the circumstances we find ourselves in, we serve we know and we are known by an immovable, holy, and powerful God. Just think on that this afternoon. No matter what I find myself in right now, or no matter what I find myself this afternoon or this week, no matter what circumstance may come, kids get sick, clients break down, car start, stops working, bills start to mount, no matter what happens, we know we are known by an immovable, holy, and powerful God who can do all things. And He claims us as His own. God doesn't come to His church and promise that He's going to change the circumstance. And God doesn't always promise He's going to change the believer's circumstances. Rather, He comes to change their point of view. And maybe that's where you're here this morning. It is so easy because, man, I, I struggle with this too, where I get so focused on what's going on instead of Him. I get so focused on things that are out of my control that I lose focus on the one I should be focusing on to fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith. And when we can focus on the things out of our control, we lose focus on the one who controls them all. And what happens? You know what happens? This, this, just, this is what I've learned. When I focus on the things that are out of my control, 
I begin to serve those things. Because that's where my mind goes. That's where my heart goes. That's where my passion goes. That's where my conversation goes. Instead of focusing on the one who controls that situation. God doesn't promise rainbows and lollipops. But he does promise his faithfulness. There's one more thing we need to take before we leave here this morning. This promise of the faithfulness of God, the God who's there to bring comfort and to bring power into our lives, this promise is given to a church, and a church is a gathering of believers. So this promise is not given to those who have yet to accept Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning and you've yet to confess Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you are going through these life circumstances on your own. He is not there. He does not have a rod and a staff to comfort you. You should be afraid. But God has brought you to this moment, to this place, to reveal His gospel to you. He is the Holy One, the true one. And His gospel is that He created you for a relationship with Him. But the problem with you and me is we have sin. Everyone in this room has sin. We all have things we struggle with. We do things out of the will of God. And it's our sin that separates us from the holy, true God. The thing we try to do is we try to do better. We try to be good. We, we try to work our way so we know, well, I should go to heaven. But that's not the way it works with God. Because He is holy, holy, holy. I can't do enough stuff to be holy, holy, holy. And it's only by the grace of God, which is why He sent Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, you've yet to accept Jesus Christ. You're still in your sin, but God calls out to you by his love. So I've sent my son Jesus to die for your sins, to take your penalty, to take my wrath upon him. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later that you could be completely forgiven. And all you have to do is believe that I love you that much. Believe that Jesus died for you and that I rose him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. You will be completely forgiven. You will become a pillar in the presence of God. That's salvation. That's grace and that's mercy. If you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, we're going to have a time invitation on Jackson to come on up. And that's something you need to do. I'm going to invite you to come down. Just let me know, hey, Pastor Mike, I, I, want, I want to be saved. I want Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you're just going through it. Man, I'll tell you what, we had a week of it. I had a wonderful church accident. I didn't file a report, so don't worry. So. Kids got sick. We thought we were over it Tuesday night, and then we heard the eruption from the other one, and it was just like, oh. God, what's going on? He was faithful. He was faithful. And as I was preparing to preach a message about changing my perspective and my focus, God said, hey, why don't you practice what you preach, buddy? Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you've been so focused on all these circumstances you can't control, and you've lost focus on the one who does control. You just come before the Father and say, forgive me. He is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for loving us. Thank you, you are faithful, and we can trust you no matter what happens in life, no matter what storms come. Lord, you are the God who walked on water. You are the God who told the storm to be still, and it was still. You're the God who spoke, and it was. You're the God who sits on his throne and will never be moved. 
God, help us to trust you. Help us to to rely upon you and stay focused on you. Lord, we are a people of little power. We can't save ourselves. We can't know it all. We can't figure it all out. And it doesn't go according to our plan. But you are the God of all power. And we come before you and, and submit ourselves to you. Pray for those here this morning who need to accept you as their Lord and Savior. They know it. Their hearts are speaking to them. Your spirit is speaking to them. These promises that you delivered to your church in Philadelphia are not promises to them at this moment, but it can be. Lord, I ask you just to draw them to yourself, to bring them forward. Let them confess you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank for your forgiveness. I thank you for your grace, Lord, and how you spoke to my heart this week about just losing focus, becoming stressed and worried about things that I don't even be stressed and worried about because you're my God. All you tell me to do is seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, give me that heart. No matter what comes in life, that's what I'm doing. But I'm keeping to your word. Give us as a church that heart. I thank you for what you've done and what you're going to do and what you're doing right now. So we come this time in response, Lord, let it be pleasing to you. A true act of worship. Praise all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.